Good evening. Well, wasn't that a fabulous time? I was so affected by the Holy Spirit that during the declaration, though, I really, uh, read that God was releasing flavor. So, uh, which frankly wouldn't be so bad. Uh, some of us could do with a little bit of flavor. Uh, so flavor, flavor, potato, potato. Uh, it's interesting, actually, tonight's story features this complex. So uh, that didn't dawn on me until I was sitting here that actually uh, it was this very uh, facility that's part of the story I want to tell uh, tonight. These days, uh, I spend majority of my time kind of working with people one-on-one. Uh, it's interesting how God understands how your life is going to go. When I left high school, I did a master's degree uh, in psychology. Uh, and, you know, I, I put that down when I got saved. I remember those early years when, when Paul and I became friends, and I used to think, well, you know, all of that psychobabble stuff is all sort of worldly stuff and, and kind of useless. But uh, it was about 10 years ago that I, I did the Living Wisdom course with David Riddell, uh, and, and somehow faith and psychology were able to kind of intersect uh, in my life and then uh, help me to help other people. So that's what uh, I spend a lot of my time doing now, is helping people navigate sort of their story. But I want to tell you my story uh, tonight. A lot of people wonder what happened to me. You, you may recall, as Paul has mentioned, that I, I did work at Rima. I actually did all three stations. It's quite funny when you work at Rima, at Rima. You know, when I was young and single, I started off at Life FM, and then I got married, and so I started working at Rima. And then uh, when the kids got older, I went to Star, where Christian DJs go to die. Uh, so that's where I, I finished. Uh, I always thought that the byline should have been, you know, uh, uh, music to die by, because uh, there was this uh, frequent feeling while on Star that it was like, Lord, take me now. Uh, it, was, it was time for something different uh, in my life. Uh, Paul wondered about this photo. Uh, this wasn't how I would preach every week at the church uh, that we pastored. We uh, planted a church, which I'll tell you a little bit about tonight, uh, called Harvest. Uh, and one of the things that we developed uh, as part of our life as a community was a real interest in the Hebraic roots of the faith. Uh, and so that's just me probably talking, probably this time of year actually, uh, would have been around uh, Sukkot, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and of course the, uh, the Talit, the prayer shawl, forms a kind of sukkah or a shelter for every believer uh, to remind uh, us all of uh, God's incredible covering over us. Uh, but I went to Australia uh, in 2017, and so the story tonight starts back in 2016. And features Hope Centre, but not as a church, but as a venue. Uh, some of you may know that uh, I have been part of Promise Keepers for a long time, uh, well over 20 years, and, and 2016 was one of those years that they were going to have me speak. Uh, with Promise Keepers, it's kind of like year on, year off. They try and sort of, you know, sprinkle you out along the way, and that was going to be my year. Which is fine. So I started off in Christchurch, and uh, I can't remember what I was speaking about that particular year. But at the end of the meeting, a stranger came up to me and said, could he give me a prophetic word? Uh, and whilst that didn't happen so often at that time, it wasn't entirely unusual. So I said, well, yeah, sure, that's fine. Uh, and so he said, look, the Lord says, prepare yourself for a promotion into a position of national influence uh, and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. But, you know, to be honest, and I, and I say this as humbly as I can, but when you're on the radio, 
uh, and people know you, when they give you a prophecy, it's usually something kind of grandiose like that. So again, not entirely uncommon, and I kind of smiled and nodded and said, that's fine. A month later, I come here to Hope Center, where uh, the venue is being used for Promise Keepers, uh, and so I preached my message, and at the end of the event, a stranger came up to me again and said, oh, would it be okay if I gave you a prophetic word? And I'm like, oh, I suppose. He said, well, the Lord says, prepare yourself for a promotion into a position of national influence. Well, I'm not the most spiritual man, but it's fair to say I was like, pardon me now? So I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. Two for two, all right. So uh, a month later, we're in the Auckland event, and you guessed at the end of the Auckland event, a stranger comes up to me and says, promotion into a position of national leadership and okay well Lord you got my attention now well and truly the thing was and, and I think often the case for you and I is that when we receive a prophetic word uh, where the spirit ends the flesh takes over uh, we are more than able to start deciding that we know what it refers to and what it was all about and I decided that I knew I decided that there was a particular role that I thought this is the role that the prophecy refers to. Uh, and sure enough, the person who held that role resigned abruptly a month later. I thought, this is really the role. So I started to have all my hopes pinned on, on getting this role. In November of that year, that role came available and I applied. And we were on holiday, uh, actually down Golden Bay uh, this time, um, rather than, well, not Golden Bay, uh, Takika. Uh, and uh, we're on, on holiday there, and I got this email saying, uh, thanks for your application, but we won't be taking it any further. Well, well that's a bit confusing, because I was pretty sure that was the job that the prophecies referred to. So that was really weird for me, and I said to my wife, Debbie, well, you know, what am I supposed to do? Because in order to prepare my heart for taking on this role, I had been willing to give up pastoring the church. I'd been willing to give up the counseling uh, business and ministry, which I just started, uh, and, and I, I was like, I'm willing to give up the radio show, and I said, well, um, I don't understand, Debs. It's kind of all those things are still on the altar even though they've said no. Now, my wife has this incredible ability to succinctly kind of uh, distill things into a sentence, and she just turned to me and said, well, darling, that's because change is no longer optional. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't really know what that meant, uh, but I knew she was right. I knew that really we were at the point where something had to change, and, uh, and it was all still on the altar. So we had a, that summer holiday was a terrible summer holiday. I won't tell you about it because it'll make me cry. Uh, but it was an awful summer holiday. And in the middle of that summer holiday, uh, we'd come home and, and my wife and, and daughter loved those zombie programs. Anybody like those walking down? I can't stand those zombie programs. So when they were watching one of those zombie programs, I'm like, really? It's just nonsense. Anyway, so I thought, oh, I'll go on uh, to the computer. And I thought, well, you know, here I am, a radio guy. I typed into the computer, radio, Christian Radio Jobs Australia. And up came this job. Uh, the content director of a radio station uh, called Hope Media. Now, even though I've been working in Christian Radio for 20 years at this point, I really wasn't that familiar with the Aussie scene, but it turned out that this is one of the big uh, Christian radio stations in Australia. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll apply for the job because I'll probably get an interview, right? And I'll need to practice. 
because uh, the only other job I nearly got was kind of funny because uh, there was this media man manager job that I applied for and I went and sat uh, in the in the, uh, the HR lady's office at this HR company. She turned up, she goes, well, I'm sorry we brought you in today. We should have read your CV more closely. It's the media manager for the TAB. I'm like, yes, I'm probably not the guy for that job. Can't have my KPI being more bets on horsies. Uh, so anyway, I thought, I, I, I need the practice. So I applied for this job, and we had this terrible, terrible holiday, and I was really frustrated. I hadn't heard anything about any of the jobs I'd applied for, but somehow change was no longer optional. Well, then I get this email. Could we have a Zoom interview with you for this role? And I'm like, well, you know, I've got no intention of going to Sydney, but I've got uh, an, an interview. So I said, yes, I'll have this interview with you. And this, even when on the day of the interview, my eldest daughter said, well, you know, good luck for the interview, Dad. And I'm like, darling, I don't even want this job. It's just for practice. I just haven't, don't even need nothing. So I'm sitting there talking to these two gentlemen in, in Australia who are interviewing me. And look, the counselor in me knew I was doing well. You know, I'm now quite good at reading people, uh, and I could see that they were trying to talk to each other with their eyes, like, I like this guy, I like this guy, you like this guy, I like this guy. I could see that I was doing well. So I said, confusingly, what happens uh, if I get to the next stage of the interview process? So, well, we'll need you to fly to Sydney next weekend for an in-person interview. Okay, so I got off the phone, and everything in me knew that they were going to ask for that. But for the first time in my adult life, I had let my passport expire. So I thought, well, I better ring Debbie and tell her what's going on. So I ring her, no answer, no answer. I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure they're going to ask me. And so then I go on the, the, the passport site, and you've got your two options. There was the seven-day uh, option, and then there was the emergency three-day option, which was a lot more expensive. Uh, but between that day and the following weekend was Waitangi Day, so we were down to like three working days. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to pick the expensive option. So I went down to the chemist, and I got my photo taken, and I filled in all of this passport application and sent it off. And then... I finally got hold of Debbie. She had been at the, uh, the swimming pool with the kids, and so the phone was off. This time, she was walking around pack and safe. And so she answers the phone and said, look, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to get an invite to go to Sydney next week. So I renewed my passport because I'm pretty sure I'm going to go to Sydney next week. And she screamed. It wasn't the good kind of scream <laughs> because I had been telling them that I wasn't going to be doing any of these sorts of things. And so... I went to Sydney the next weekend, uh, and I interview well, and, and that proved to be a problem here, uh, because I interview well. And, of course, after I interviewed, uh, a month later they rung and said, we'd like you to come and be the content director. Well, it seemed right, you know, it was happening. I was getting this promotion into a position of national influence uh, in Australia. So uh, we told the church, that we were leaving. Uh, I still probably haven't made sense of this next bit in my head uh, all these years later, but the church voted to close at that point. And so our last service was the last service of a church that we had led for 15 years. Uh, and so suddenly, you know, it was kind of this big event was happening, this thing I'd poured my life into was ending, and, and the next thing I, I'm in, Australia. First weekend in Sydney, we went to Hillsong. That's the big Hillsong campus in Borkham Hills. Uh, we only knew uh, one kind of Kiwi family there who were friends of ours, and so we stayed with them, and they lived uh, close by and went to, to Hillsong. It was Easter Sunday. 
It's an amazing service, actually. Uh, everything's big in Hillsong, right? And so uh, Easter Sunday was a baptism service. There were like 100 people being baptized. And, and these pools, baptism pools, appeared at the front of the stage. Like panels disappeared, and these pools appeared, and, and they played a song, uh, and people just sort of went like a conveyor belt down under the water, and then came up the other side, like 100 people. It was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I'm crying. I'm like, well, you know, we've come to be part of the gospel witness to Sydney. And, and here's this, you know, reminder. And, and, and it seemed to be going really well. I mean, at the four-month mark, they uh, sat me down and they said, look, you know, you're, you're changing probably too many things, but the things you want to change are all the right things. Uh, by the way, in 2017, my wife and I found this great diet. Uh, I lost 22 kilos that year, and so there's me probably near the lowest weight I got to. Um, as you can see, I, I found some of the kilos when I came back to Auckland, which just only confirmed my suspicion that it was Auckland making me fat. So uh, at the four-month mark, it was going well. But then between the four-month and the eight-month mark, it became apparent that it wasn't going so well. You see, well, there were a couple of problems. One was that they had decided to have an incredibly flat structure. So I had 18 direct reports. That's a lot of people directly reporting to you. Uh, and I was replacing a man who was beloved by the staff, who was staying in the organization but going to the Brisbane station. So I was kind of like the stepdad nobody wanted. And so within the 18, there were some who loved me, and then there were some who did not love me. And of course, over time, I was naturally gravitating and spending more and more time with the ones who loved me and, you know, working out how you could walk around the office without having to see the other ones. Things weren't uh, going so well, and then they sat me down at the eight-month mark, uh, and I kind of knew it wasn't going the way it was supposed to, but I probably didn't really see this coming. And those same two men this time sat me down and said, look, you know, right now you've got 18 staff and four teams, and, and we don't think you're handling that complexity very well. Next year we want to add a fifth team, and we just don't think you're the guy for that. And so they sent me home, and I never went back. Uh, and I'd like to tell you more about that, but they made me sign a non-disclosure agreement um, but all I'll say about that is that that serves to protect them, not me. But I can't tell you much more about that. So, what to do? Well, we spoke and we prayed and we figured, hey, uh, nobody knows me in Sydney, but, you know, in Auckland, people know me. And so I'm bound to be able to find something. So we decided that we would come home. Uh, our two oldest kids were still here, so we figured, you know, better to be with the family, and even though this is a difficult time, we came home. I realized that that sign really should read, welcome to Auckland, enjoy your delay. Uh, because what would follow would be uh, just an incredibly incredibly painful and difficult time. Uh, I would spend the good chunk of a year, over 300 days, uh, underemployed, my wife says, not unemployed, because I found some things to do, restarted the counselling work, had a few clients, started hosting quizzes at pubs, anything to, to get the, some money to come in. 
And, and, and then we discovered all these kind of litany of, of, of difficulties, this crazy year. My dad, uh, turned out, had kidney cancer, had to have a kidney removed. Uh, we came home to discover that there was both mental illness and drug addiction issues in the family that we were previously unaware of. I applied for 150 jobs. If I ever in my life again see an email that starts with, we had a high caliber of applicants. Sure you did. And, and some real family conflict that, um, that was really very painful. To, to, just to kind of tell you just what a crazy year it was, July of that year was the Football World Cup, the kicky football, not the rugby, you know, the, what Paul says football is, what we call soccer. And in the middle of uh, the night, one night, I woke myself up coughing because it was a bit of a cold night, and I remembered, it's like the grand final of the football. So I will get up and I will watch the football in the middle of the night. So I get my uh, dressing gown on, I'm sitting on the couch and I'm watching this game, half asleep, and I suddenly hear this noise. Bang, 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 bang. I'm like, what the? So I turned the TV down and listened again. Bang, 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 bang. Like, what is going on? So I walked to the front of the lounge and I peered through the curtain and there I saw a stranger in a hoodie hitting our cars with a hockey stick. So, you know, I, I rung the police and the good thing about West Auckland is they're always close by. Uh, and so they arrived while I was still on the phone and uh, this lady was having some kind of psychotic break and decided that my wife's car and my car would be the targets of this attack. This is just the craziest thing. But it just wasn't even, didn't even there, end there. Two days later, Debbie turns up at breakfast and says, Honey, somebody's attacked your car. Somebody's hit your car. I'm like, you mean like the lady from the other night with the hockey stick? She says, no. I went outside. <laughs> oh, Paul, you're going to hell <laughs> for laughing at that. So what had happened was that at, at about 3 o'clock in the morning, someone was driving home and their phone had slipped off the passenger seat and they had reached down to pick up their phone and by the time they'd got their phone, they'd crossed the median barrier and they'd hit my car and the back door had peeled back like a can opener. This is the year I'm having, folks, in 20. 18. This is 2018. It's fair to say things aren't going very well. It was this quote that uh, made sense from S. Scott Fitzgerald, that in, a, in the dark night of the soul, it's always three o'clock in the morning. Felt like it. Felt like it. Day after day, just never ending. It's just always dark, man. It's just and, and the bad stuff was happening at 3 o'clock in the morning. And, and I realized I was having this experience called the dark night of the soul. Uh, I had never had anything like this happen to me. I'd never been in a dark place, not like this, not that didn't lift, that just went on and on and on and on. And friends, it was not fun. I used to go down to the, um, a cafe in our area, have a, a cup of coffee and read my Bible in the morning. And, and one morning, I, just the daily devotional thing I was working through took me to this particular psalm. Uh, 
That was really powerful for me because it said, you know, you number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. You number my wanderings. Man, I felt like God had lost my address. I'm like, God, did you lose me somewhere between Sydney and Auckland? Because I feel like you lost me somewhere. But you number my wanderings. You know where I am. And, and you care about these tears of mine. I burst into tears in the cafe. I went on a really interesting journey for the next few months because I discovered these passages in the Bible that, that, that Christians don't really like to talk about in the book of Psalms. They're called the Psalms of Lamentation. And about a third of the Psalms are laments. And I realized that the things that would be written in these Psalms, if you said them to other Christians, you would get really bad reactions from them because as if somehow you just weren't a proper Christian anymore. You couldn't dare say these things. So I, this is my worst of list. Uh, these are different phrases from different Psalms of lament that made sense to me. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? You sure as hell seem a whole bunch far away from me right now. Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You know, people would say such helpful things like, you just need to press into God and get a word and listen. Are you kidding me? It's like heaven's got a mute button on it. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. I am forgotten as though I were dead. And the thing was, you say these sorts of things to other Christians, and they hear them as kind of, well, Christians shouldn't really talk like this. But these are from the Bible. <laughs> these are from the largest group of Psalms in the Bible. I was so glad that some people understood this. Because I was struggling, you could imagine, with church. <laughs> Funnily, I went to church more often that year than probably most uh, of the time, but, but not in a good way. Like, uh, I would just kind of go to church, and they'd be like, well, I'm here. What do you got? Still nothing, huh? I'll see you again tonight. Thankfully, the worship leader at the church understood he had had a dark night of the soul, and he said something that no worship leader has ever said to a visit. And keep in mind, that, you know, in their mind, I'm this kind of pastor from the area, you know. He says, if you need to just come to, the, uh, to church and stand at the back and swear at God, you feel free. <laughs> like, this man I like. This man gets it. Because, see, he understood something. He understood that my pain was as welcome to God as my praise. And not everybody seemed to understand that. A lot of time we make our pain sound like something we should hide from him. But our pain is as welcome as our praise. But some people just couldn't help themselves. I had one friend who would say, you know what you need to do, brother? You just need to sing hallelujah. You just need to put on a worship song, and you just need to sing hallelujah. Want <laughs> really? That's, that's, that's your, your great advice. It was well-meaning, but, you know, like when you're in the dark night of the soul, you get very punchy is all I'm saying. You know, you... I want you to read a verse now with, with all of that in mind. 
telling someone to sing hallelujah. Let's, let's take a look at one of these psalms of lament. So let's recap the story. Israel has been taken into captivity and marched out of Israel, their promised land. And they've started to believe that God has finally forgotten them, that this is it. We've done it. We've blown it one too many times. We're done. We're out. We're gone. You remember the song if you're my age, but it's a happy song, By the Rivers of Babylon. Almost want to break into song. It's the wrong vibe though, isn't it? Because by the rivers of Babylon, they sat down and they wept and remembered Zion. We're a long way from home. Listen to this next verse. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. You know, my guitar sat in the corner of my room for a year untouched. My harp was hanging in the willow. I can't do this yet. Don't ask me to sing yet. I'm not up to singing. And then listen to this. Friends, if you tell someone in the dark night to sing hallelujah, you are like this next verse. For there our captors demanded of us songs. And our tor- tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of your songs of Zion. Sing hallelujah. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How? How can we sing? You see, in, your, in the dark night of the soul, you just don't know how to sing anymore. But you need to know your pain's as welcome as your praise. Because if you don't know that, you won't say anything. Let me give you an illustration of when to sing hallelujah. This is my friend Henry. Uh, he was the one we stayed with in Sydney and his son Benji. We went out to watch the Warriors. We went out to Penrith, the Pepper Stadium. And you know, Penrith now are champs if you follow the... But back then, they were on a big-time losing streak. And the Warriors were up something like 23-6 at halftime. And, of course, you know, we are these couple of Kiwis sitting there. The Penrith fans are booing their own team at halftime when they walk to the sheds. Boo! And we are we're sheepishly turning to the Aussie fans and going, just just give us this. You know, we're Warriors fans. We're not used to winning very much. Just, just let us have this. Right? And then in the second half, I don't know what they put in the orange juice. But two different came, teams came out and Penrith blew the Warriors off the park and won. Now, here's the thing. I'd never been to an away game in an NRL game. So I didn't know what was about to happen. But as we stood up and Sheepishly put our head down and walked towards the exit. The Penrith club song began to play over the speakers. And the crowd began to sing. You see, friends, that's when you sing hallelujah, when you're winning. Imagine if they'd sung that song at halftime. Wouldn't have made sense, would it? Would have been a really weird thing to sing at halftime. You sing that song when you're winning. But when you're not, you need to know that you can bring God your pain if you don't have any praise. Some friends gave bad advice, like sing hallelujah. Others understood that that wasn't what was needed right now. I was telling the guys yesterday morning about my friend Siusi. Siusi is uh, this half Samoan, half Maori guy. He's sort of six foot four and 150 kilos of pure love. And he would just ring, he ring, he'd ring me up. He'd say, oh, bro, what are you doing? 
I'm like, I don't know, nothing. I'm never doing anything. He goes, oh, I'm outside. <laughs> Come and have some kai. So I'd get out in the car, and he would drive me to a restaurant, and we would sit there, and we would eat. And, and I would often say things like this to him. I'm like, man, I'm sorry that I just don't have a good story. I'm going to bleat on about how bad this is again today. And I was hating this kind of loop, you know, this repeated refrain of how well, this really stinks and not having a good time. And he would just look at me, and he would just say, Aaron, I love you. It's really interesting during that time, a lot of my friends, male friends, started to say, I love you. For a while there, I thought I had cancer. Nobody, and I didn't know. <laughs> but actually, they were practicing something helpful. You see, I realize that too often in the church, we want to give people education. We want to tell them, well, you should do this, and you should do that. You should sing hallelujah. You should... You know, in that time, I heard all of the three possible variants of the prophecy. I had people come and say, the Lord says the new job is around the corner. And then the next person would say, the Lord says there's no job for you right now. And then the third person, and the Lord says you need to wait. I'm like, oh, that's good. I've got yes, no, and wait. How about you guys just, <laughs> I like it better when they say I love you. Right? Sometimes we need to know it's just the time for some empathy, just some time for some care. <sighs> Too often we want to tell people what they need to do, what they want to do. And, and it's interesting, you know, it really reshaped something that I would do in counseling. In counseling, we would often talk about these sorts of events as life-defining moments. You've heard this phrase, right? Actually, this experience taught me that that's a nonsense. That is not a life-defining moment. The thing that took me a whole year or more to finally work out was that this wasn't defining at all. This experience was a blip on the radar. It was completely out of the ordinary, and this certainly didn't define me. Now, one chapter doesn't define the story, folks. I don't know what chapter you're in, but let me tell you, one, one chapter maketh not a story. This is just a chapter. It didn't define me. It doesn't define you, the dark night of the soul. So, thankfully, the Scriptures guided me as to how I was to navigate, and here's what I learned. I learned that during the dark night of the soul, you can't look forward because it just feels dark, foreboding. The future feels like more of this crud, right? So what do you do if you can't look forward? You look back. Because you see, the God we worship stands outside of time and space. So the past and the future are awfully similar to him. So if you can't look forward, look back. Because I couldn't think about the future. I couldn't plan. I couldn't imagine things would work out. So I went back and I dug up the past. And I remembered the deeds of the Lord. I remembered the wonders of old. I remembered that this isn't the whole story. That there's other stories to be told. That there are other things that have happened. And that they are the things that help me in the dark night of the soul. And if you can't look forward, man, you better practice looking back. This is why, of course, and I was wonderful uh, meeting Ross and his wonderful bride today and uh, seeing this video series on the feasts of Israel because that's what the feasts are about. 
The feasts are about saying, if you want to know what's coming next, start looking back. If you want to know what God is like, don't just look forward, but look back. Keep remembering. Anybody else a lousy rememberer? I'm a lousy rememberer. I don't think about the past hardly ever. Very future-focused person normally. This was not my natural thing to do. But boy, did it help. So we look back. And we remembered what God had done. Just taking this, the church that we had led and planted uh, as a little snapshot to something to remember. And I started to recall the stories of the people who had come to faith. 117 of them we'd baptized in 15 years. We were keeping up a really good, almost one a month average for years and years. And then it just didn't quite keep up. Not that that matters, but you know, we were very very touched to realize that we were part of so many people finding Jesus. We, we were part of planting other churches, four church plants and all. Interestingly now, um, the last of them, I was just telling Paul, a Messianic congregation, we wouldn't say it's closed, it's changed gears. It's decided not to meet as a congregation anymore but become a teaching ministry. And then it was only in the rearview mirror we were able to look back and go, wow, 30, over 30 people now and counting have gone into full-time Christian work who had never done anything like that. And that we were part of that story for them. And we realized, you see, if you can't look forward, you've got to look back. Because to God, there is no functional difference to those things. In fact, interestingly, for those who like the Hebraic thing, Jewish people use the past tense to describe prophecy because all prophecy is past to God. So the past tense is used of prophecy. The things that we think are to come to God have happened. They're all in the past. And I had to settle some questions. Like how do I know that God loves me? Because if I had let getting a job be the answer to that question, I was going to come up dry time and time again. You know, and for many of us, we're still not settling this question. We're still wondering, well, well, God, if you love me, this will happen. If you love me, I'll, I'll find a wife. If you love me, I'll find a job. If you, if you love me, if you love me, if you love me. But I had to settle it because I couldn't look to the external. Couldn't look to my CV, couldn't look to my bank balance, couldn't look to the things that were happening in my life to work out if God loved me. So I went back even further to the cross to settle it once and for all. But God has demonstrated his own love for us in this, that whilst we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. It is a settled issue. You have no idea. And that's easy to say, but I tell you, the impact of it was huge. Because suddenly it was like, okay, some tough things are happening. But even though tough things are happening, I'm still loved. I'm still loved. You know, because in the dark night of the soul, it can feel like you've lost everything. But you haven't. I discovered that when I was completely out of faith, and friends, I can promise you that there were days that I went to pray and the tank was dry. I went to believe and there was nothing left in me to believe with. I'd spent it all and there was nothing else there. It was dry. But to discover at the end of me is God standing there holding me. 
And that too often, you know, in our faith story, we think that this is kind of riding on us. The things I have to do. And there's stuff for us to do, there's no doubt. But even on the days you can't do it, friends, it's his faithfulness that you find. And in the end, you won't, in a sense, ever discover this until you get to that day where you run out of you. That's the gift of it. It's to discover God holding you when you can't hold on anymore. So what happened? Well, <laughs> spent 300 odd days unemployed. I always thought when I came back that what would happen, you see, would be that uh, uh, some Christian ministry would discover that I was available and they'd be like, yeah, Aaron Ironside, woo! And uh, actually that's exactly what happened. It just took 317 days. Because right towards the end of that period, uh, you know, I started to get at least smart enough to stop sending my CV to everybody, right? It was like, I can't keep adding to this 150. So I was sending it to fewer and fewer organizations. I found this group called um, Te Whakaora Tangata. Uh, Te Whakaora means um, a restored life. Te Whakaora Tangata, the people of the restored life. I'm like, okay. I could see they were a Christian group, but I didn't really know anything about them. They're in South Auckland. So I sent them my CV, and their young uh, CEO, uh, Sean, apparently, I'm told, after I got uh, the job, walked out into the middle of the office area, waving my CV, and pronounced, you won't believe who God is sending us. <laughs> and he gathered up the leadership of that group, and they, we, we had a coffee uh, together, and within 24 hours, they'd offered me the job to be their fundraising and communications manager. They have this incredible uh, program that they do among Māori and Pacific Island families. They do this uh, five-week course called the Family Restoration Course. And on week four, they talk about the love languages, and then in what is the cleverest thing I've probably ever heard, they say to the group, if these love languages are broken, and most of these people, uh, you know, they're coming from, from gang environments and relationships are really broken, there's another love language that will never fail, and we'll tell you about that next week. Oh, come back. What a tease. It was, it was really weird because they said, you know, all new staff members had to go through this course. So there I am sitting in this room with, you know, a uh, hundred other people, the only white face, feeling very out of sorts, and the CEO stands up and says to you know, the group, oh, look, that, we'd like to introduce you to our new teammate, Aaron, down the back. Don't worry, he's not a cop. <laughs> to which I then sort of, you know, quickly point to my tummy and say, too fat to be a cop, yeah. And they said to me, on week five, everybody gets saved. I'm like, no, I've been a Christian a long time. There is no room in which everybody gets saved. They said, no, no seriously, week five, everybody will get saved. I'm like, okay, all right. I mean, these are the toughest of tough people. I mean, some of the people had jewelry on their ankle I had not seen before. <laughs> and so on the fifth week, they present the gospel as this love language that never fails. And then very, really kind of not matter-of-factly, not any great, no music playing, nothing like that. They just say, well, look. If you realize that what you need is this love and that it's the only love that will heal you, uh, you 
need to come to Jesus right now. And so they make this appeal, and I, I swear, the whole room stood at once. I'm like, oh my goodness, they, they weren't kidding. This was Robert Brown. Uh, Rob uh, was the enforcer for the mongrel mob. Let me tell you a little bit about Rob's story. Man, what a tough story. Uh, Rob grew up uh, an adopted child, and his abuser was actually his adopted Pākehā mum. And uh, she would lock him in the cupboard as punishment, and she once locked him in the cupboard for three weeks. And I asked Rob, what was it like to be in the cupboard for three weeks? Anyone want to guess what he said? He said it was great. It's the only time he ever felt safe. I mean, he, he used to beat up kids on the playground on the simple logic that nobody here can hit as hard as my mum. Rob thought he should go and tell the cops about what was happening. So he went to the police and the police came to his parents' front door and they said this to the mum. Look, the next time you hit Rob, just don't hit him around the head. So Rob got in a lot of trouble. So he, uh, he went to jail and decided he'd like to join the mongrel mob. So he found the leader of the mongrel mob on lunchtime. He's named Charlie and said, Charlie, uh, what do I uh, need to do to join the mongrel mob? And Charlie said, well, you should stab that man. And so before lunchtime was over, he'd stabbed him. Charlie said, I was just kidding. Would you believe that last year I was telling a little bit about Rob's story to a group of teacher aides and the man in the front row stood up and left? And at the end, at morning tea, he came out to me and said, I'm the man that Rob Brown stabbed. Stabbed me five times. Rob had done 87 courses before he did the family restoration course. And it wasn't the course itself that did the trick for him. It was the one-on-one -on -one afterwards. They do a one-on-one -on -one prayer time afterwards. They did it at his house. And he said that uh, during the prayer time, he was sort of coughing and coughing and coughing, and, and he thought, oh, I should really go to the bathroom and sort of have a glass of water or something. And he was sitting in the bathroom, and he thought, my goodness, maybe it's the prayer that's making me cough. So we went back out, and they said, well, maybe you should keep praying. At the Whakaora, they have the green demon bucket that sits in the corner of the office. So common it is for people to vomit while being prayed for. And they took the green bucket with to Rob's house. And Rob promptly vomited up a cup of blood. And a 30-year drug addiction left him in an instance. So Rob comes and shares his testimony uh, to the group, and he is now one of the most transformed people you have ever met. Mongrel Mob said he couldn't leave, so they made him the chaplain. <laughs> Apparently he knew too much. <laughs> Rob actually has a lawn, a lawn mowing business, and um, we got him to be our lawnmower guy, and I had to say to my daughter, I said, look, the new lawnmower guy is coming today, and when he knocks on the door, you are going to pack yourself. Uh, but he's lovely, and he, and he really is. So I love being part of these stories, but the problem was I knew that I was built for caring for people and being part of their transformation. I like telling the story, but I wanted to be part of a story like that. So I thought, you know, even though I could do this fundraising gig, I need to find something else. And so that summer, I kept looking, and I found this job, advertised the port chaplain at the port of Auckland. 
So I rang up and I found out about this and it turned out this organisation that started in the UK 200 years ago and had been doing chaplaincy for international seafarers needed a port chaplain in Auckland. I said, oh, if I joined you, would you be okay with me doing some counselling again? They said, yeah, sure, no problem. So that's me day one of the job uh, as the Sailor Society port chaplain. Well, skipping forward to the beginning of the first lockdown, I became very much apparent, uh, it was apparent to me, very obvious to me, that uh, this lockdown might really affect the funding. The British organisation had said that they would fund the role for three years. The Kiwi organisation had funded it for one year, they'd already done that, we'd just begun year two. Well, sure enough, England sort of sent an email saying, we really can't afford to be funding a chaplain down the bottom of the world, so we're going to make you redundant. And it happened again. Gone and lost another job. But this time I was feeling a bit better of myself. So I texted some friends to let them know what had happened. And they then encouraged me. And I felt encouraged enough to send another text, but this time to people who I thought might know of a job for me. One of them was Bob McCoskery from Family First. And Bob sends back a text saying, what do you think about the cannabis referendum? I said, well, I'm a former cannabis user. So I'm against legalization. He said, how would you like to be the spokesperson? Because I'm thinking I'm losing my job. So I'd spend the next six months traveling up and down the country, being interviewed by radio and TV, and leading this campaign, saying nope to dope. I don't know if you noticed, but we won. And here's the thing. It wasn't until it was all done and dusted that I went, oh, promoted into a position of national influence. The pathway to God fulfilling his word may be nothing like you imagine. Little did I know that in order for that word to become reality in my life, I would have to have this failed experience in Australia this dark night of the soul in Auckland, take on jobs that weren't really a great fit for me, and the port job was weird. I mean, going behind these port gates, talking to guys from other countries on ships, feeling forgotten. What's happening? But knowing that God had never lost track of me at any point in the story, and that ultimately, his word would be true. Sure enough, a leadership role with national influence. I had no idea what it would be. I had no idea what it would mean for me. And so I bring this to you tonight to encourage you about a couple of things, to encourage you about prophecy. It can be tempting during the dark night of the soul to kick prophecy into touch to start to despise the things you've heard, to start to think, what a load of nonsense, that's never going to happen, couldn't possibly be, no chance, is that. But also, just to realize too that when you are going through that dark night of the soul, God hasn't lost you. And that your pain is as welcome as your praise in those moments. And if you, with whatever feeble strength you have left can stay close to him.
You have no idea what happens when the dawn breaks. So I wonder where you are tonight. I wonder if you're nursing a word, nursing a promise, wondering when it will be that this could become reality. I wonder if that's you tonight. I wonder if you are in the dark night of the soul and whether you're wondering if it's okay to feel the way you feel. I wonder if you are one who has been telling people to sing hallelujah when it's time to say I love you. I wonder. I'd love to pray with you tonight. I'd love to believe with you tonight that no matter where you find yourself in the story, that together we can hold on to Jesus because he's the only one that's constant in all those times. Why don't you stand? Let's pray together. I'm going to ask the band to come and I'd love to give you an opportunity for some prayer if you'd like some tonight, along with many others who would love to pray with you. Well, Father, you are the one that knows the end from the beginning. That all these promises, all these prophecies to you, they are past. They are the things that have happened, even though for us, they are the things that we are still waiting for and longing for and looking for. Help us, Lord. Help us be not just a people who are looking to hear from you, but a people who are looking to hold on to what we hear. To treasure it in our hearts. And to realize tonight, perhaps, that what seems to be the delays and the derailments, that nothing and no one can prevent the Lord's plan from prevailing. But Lord, there are some who are in the midst of the dark night where it feels like it's 3 a.m. and it's just dark. And I just don't know what comes next. Is it going to work out? Where are you, God? I can't see you in the darkness. I can't. Well, Lord, tonight I pray that by your Spirit you would reach into the darkness And that those who are struggling would sense your presence coming around them right now, Lord. And that the light, the one who is the light, the light of the world, might be found standing close by. So Jesus, we offer ourselves to you afresh. And God, we ask that you would be the one writing a story in us and through us. And that we would not resist the chapter that we're in, but remember that the story has not yet been concluded. God, write a marvelous story with our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.